Hello and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. And at this point I have to say that most of the time I will be saying he because the economics world is dominated by a very narrow range of gender and ethnicity. We got there in here. <laughs> I just want to add a little bit to the intro with a quote from a future week's economics legend. That is John Maynard Keynes. So why is economics relevant today? Well, here's a quote from Keynes. I'm going to do it in quite a posh voice because he was posh. Actually, I can't do a posh voice. <laughs> Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority, who hear voices in the air, are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. Now the point I'm trying to make there is that a lot of our public intellectuals today are basing their ideas, which they might convey as common sense, but are ultimately traceable back to some economics or economists of times past. Mm, Funny enough, Pete, that's a quote I often show to my students. And say to them quite a lot, remember we are the puppeteers. <laughs> That's the joy of studying economics. Anyway, the first question. Who are we looking at today and why is he still so relevant? Well, we are looking at someone who, whether you know it or not, you'll be familiar with. Adam Smith. Right. Not the most exciting name, but an exciting guy. Well, not actually that an exciting guy. <laughs> we taught an Adam Smith, didn't we? We did teach an Adam Smith. <laughs> He didn't quite have the same intellectual capabilities. Now it's empty head. Is he? There we are. There we are. Right. So we're going to be looking at Adam Smith. Adam Smith, we very much see as one of the founding fathers of economics. A bit like James Brown and hip hop. Mm. Trying to keep it down with the kids. Uh, So we are going to be looking at Adam Smith. You will be familiar with him because he's on a £20 note. And more of that later. And he's famous for various economic ideas which are still very current today. Uh, such as specialisation and the division of labour, which we're going to touch upon. Um, kind of created as well the idea of uh, GDP, or the idea that um, you know commerce or the level of commerce in an economy is far more important than sort of just gold or silver deposits, which before his time were seen as uh, a measure of a successful economy. Uh, and we'll see he's a bit more interesting than he's sometimes portrayed to be. Yeah. He's very much been taken over by uh, the right wing uh, of politics. Uh, and um, as we'll see, he's not for completely unfettered free markets. Yeah, so we're going to introduce a bit of controversy. Oof. Uh, another important Adam Smith concept that we're going to touch upon is the invisible hand. Which sounds a bit pervy, but isn't. Uh, so, what we might... Just, I just want to stop you there just for, a <laughs> second, for a second. Because uh, what I found fascinating there was... The fact that you think um, saying James Brown and the Godfather of Soul is being down with the kids. Um, I mean, I personally would say, being a bit more hip, uh, that it would be maybe Wiley and Grime. Ooh. <laughs> there you go. But you oh carry on. You carry on with James Brown. I think that is actually slightly more tragic. <laughs> the sheer effort you're making there. The father of soul. Uh, right. Anyway. So, a bit about James Brown. Born in 1723 in Kirkcaldy, Scotland. 
<laughs> Adam Smith. <laughs> right, that might get cut out in <laughs> the final edit. Uh, so, Adam Smith, born in 1723 in Kirkcaldy in Scotland. Uh, his dad was a civil servant, but he died like many great men. His dad, his dad died when uh, Old Smithy was only two. So tragic early death. You see that in a lot of public Ooh. intellectuals, a lot of sort of great men throughout history. Uh, uh, I don't know about women, actually, going back to your point earlier, but certainly in the biographies of many great men, you do see a father dying young. Um, so anyway, he's baptised into the Church of Scotland. Um, <laughs> and this is... Uh, he was kidnapped by gypsies aged three, which was amongst the most uh, more amusing. Uh, I think they would have been called gypsies then as well. I know might call them travellers these days. Um, anyway, he's rescued by an uncle. You never hear of the uncle again, but obviously quite an heroic figure. And without that uncle, where would we be today? <laughs> uh, he apparently went to one of the best secondary schools in Scotland and he learned Latin, maths, history and writing. Were you classics? Yeah, Golf would love that, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. he would love that. Yeah. No um, dance. And then he entered university at the uh, Glasgow at the age of 14. So can you imagine going to university at the age of 14? No. No. Unusual. But I don't think it was that uncommon then. Yeah. Um, after that, he went to uh, Balliol College in Oxford. And I've got our first quote here. Um, so in the University of Oxford, the great part of the public professors there... Oh, I have to edit that out. That sounds dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> keep it in, keep it in. Uh, so anyway, uh, he complained about the teaching at Oxford. He said, shall I try the Scottish accent? Yeah, we, we've it. debated go about this it. before we went on air. Should we try Scottish accents or not? We don't even know how Scottish he sounded. He was from Edinburgh. And where'd you go to Edinburgh? There will be a few uh, accents as we go through the podcast. Um, recently, uh, Peter and I played a game called Accentuate, uh, where you have to use accents uh, uh, with common phrases. And... Um, you know, we are happy to go with accents. And if we, we don't do them very well, then we, we apologise. But fun fact about Accentuate, I found out the other day, um, it was backed by Peter Jones in The Dragon's Den. Wow. He spent £45,000 back in that. Really? Anyway, yeah. carry on. OK, so, quote by Smith, and I'll try, I'll try a Scottish accent. In the University of Oxford, the greater part of the public professors... Oh, no, I can't do it. <laughs> Keep going. Have for these many years. No, no, what's it gone into there? <laughs> Given up altogether, even the pretense of. Oh, no, no, it's all over the place. Even the pretense of teaching. So basically, he used to complain about the teaching he got at Oxford. But do you know what's interesting about that now? So basically, hated his time at Oxford. Actually, got in trouble when he was there for reading what at the time was seditious literature or seen seditious literature. Okay. Uh, which is the philosophy of uh, David Hume. Interestingly, they went on to become uh, buds, right. uh, part of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, but um, it was seen as sort of, a, you know, I think it, uh, atheistic leanings in there. I, I don't know. I don't quite know why he wasn't allowed uh, to read it. But he was confiscated from him and he was punished severely. I don't really know <laughs> what the punishment involved. Uh, well, there we are. Um, so he didn't really enjoy his time at Oxford, but interestingly, if you go on Balliol College's website now, they claim him, you know, famous alumni. Classic. There's nothing like, oh, famous alumni who hated coming to Balliol College. They still yeah. claim him. Well, there we are. So, um, 
Hey, he's listed four. I actually looked it up. He's listed fourth on their list of remarkable alumni. Who are hmm. the top? Who are the top three? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like mm, to know. You'd like to know. Well, when we go fair, we <laughs> okay. Um, we'll find out. Yeah, actually, another of the another of the Oxford colleges. Just a bit of a side sideline here. University College, one of the oldest uh, colleges in Oxford. They've got a statue of Shelley. Quite a nice statue. Uh, but they booted him out. Yeah, so they expelled him, and then sort of years later, I think they accepted a statue from his family, sort of after a sort of decent amount of time. But you know, what would Shelley think about that? They'll, oh, claim, yes. they'll claim anyone. Yeah, they? they'll claim anyone. It's disgraceful. Uh, so another fact about him: he was a lifelong bachelor. Back in the day when that wasn't a euphemism. Yeah, so he was a lifelong bachelor. And I've got a quote from Smith, or, or a sort of a description. He describes love as ridiculous, but not naturally odious. Hmm. So that might be why he was a lifelong bachelor. That sounds know. a little bit like... Um, <clears throat> what's that thing where Darwin did a kind of cost-benefit analysis of whether he should marry or not? Oh, yeah. 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 And he kind of put them all... And then decided that he shouldn't marry, and then still did. Yeah, yeah, he did. He'll have loads of kids. Yeah. Have you been to his house? No. I've been to his house. Where is it? It's in Kent, and it's very nice. <laughs> and do you know what I remember about it? He had a wooden slide, which he... So, obviously, despite all the sort of early negativity about marriage, he definitely embraced it. Wooden slide, which fit fitted on the stairs, that all his kids could sort of, like, fly down. Yeah, you wouldn't want splinters on that. It was very smooth. I know you're not supposed to touch these things, in Zoom, but I did touch it because I think I actually had the same concern. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, so after he uh, so went back up to Scotland, he um, gave a... Well, he's basically educated again uh, at the University of uh, Glasgow. He attained a, a professorship and he taught moral philosophy. And he was part of the Scottish Enlightenment. So David Hume, who he was sort of uh, censured uh, for reading when he was at Oxford, became a good friend. And uh, they were some of the foremost thinkers in the Scottish Enlightenment. And during that time, he wrote and published perhaps the work which he might have been wanting to be remembered more for uh, than his most famous work. So he wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So he, he lectured, he lectured, he lectured, uh, seen as a, a very popular lecturer, yeah, very popular. And in later life, he took a tutoring position, which presumably paid better than 30 quid an hour, which we might get for tutoring economics, uh, that allowed him to travel throughout Europe, where he met many intellectual leaders of the day. Um, so that's kind of a very brief biog, and the reason for the biog is really... We don't tend to see Adam Smith in his time. We've seen a lot of uh, writing think tanks today have picked up Adam Smith's ideas, and they're very keen to apply those principles to today's world. But he is very much a man of the 18th century, a man of the 18th century where the economy was dramatically different than it is today. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we need to be slightly wary of applying his uh, sort of theories, his principles, to uh, the world today. And I think actually reading him, Adam Smith, he'd be quite comfortable with that. It's very descriptive, his work. It's very much rooted in his time. So I think we need to be slightly wary when we're applying his economic ideas to our time. Although I think we'll probably come to the conclusion that many of his ideas are indeed timeless. I think that's a, a very interesting point. 
um, and we should always keep that in mind when we do all of our economists about the time and the place. Um, I don't know about you, Pete, but uh, when I listen to music, I try and think of it as the, imagining it as the first time ever it being played on radio. Right. To bring new life to it. So Bohemian Rhapsody, imagine listening to that for the first time. Yeah. Now, talking about kids earlier on, I asked uh, students at my school, yes, part of the Christmas quiz, which band has had most Christmas number ones? You're asking me? Yeah. I Slade? No. Ooh, um... It's a tough one. I'm going to give you <laughs> It's the Beatles. Oh. Yeah, the Beatles have had four number ones, followed by the Spice Girls, who had three. Now, when I asked my class, who listens to the Beatles? Out of a class of 30, one person said, they're rubbish. Mm. Yeah, and then four people put their hand up. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because now people listen to the Beatles and think, so boring. You know, you can look back at that from our, like, not our generation, obviously, yeah. but the youngsters of today look do back at Do they think of the Beatles as boring? Yeah, they do. It's just jingly jangly guitar, isn't it? They don't really care about it. They think, you know, that's oh, that's the impression I get. Yeah. And they don't see it as being kind of innovative at all. But at the time, yeah. at the time, they were groundbreakers. Do you know what's interesting you were saying about music, though, and listening to it on the radio for the first time, uh, as if it's for the first time? If you go back far enough, Adam Smith's time, for example, if he heard a piece of music at some live performance, he would probably never hear it again. So it wouldn't be like, oh, I've just listen, uh, ooh, I've got to get my ears right here. Beethoven's a bit late, I was going to say Beethoven. <laughs> if you listen to some uh, great 18th century composer, whoever that might be, <laughs> Vivaldi? That would do, I, I don't uh, Vivaldi, know. Let's go Vivaldi. Yeah. Uh, if he listened to that, some public performance of it, he would, in all light, you would never get here again. He couldn't. Mm. So imagine, again, the concentration you must have. You would probably really savour it, wouldn't you? Thinking, ah. Oh, yeah, you'd just be think absolutely in the moment. It's important. Economics is all about context. And that's how you should listen to this podcast, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely in the moment. Uh, so, we need to move on. So, we've got a brief biography of uh, Adam Smith. Didn't say James Brown this time, thankfully. Good. And who we need, what we need to do now is to establish why he's... Yeah, what sort of the kind of... he is. What, what, what's he famous concepts. for? Yeah. Okay. So, as my fellow economics teacher, you're going to help me out here. Okay. Okay. So, key concept number one, specialisation in the division of labour. So, take it away. Classic. Now, <laughs> I uh, teach this by, I say to the kids, I said, look, uh, he focused on the pin factory in the Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. I think I remember correctly, and every day they made 200 pins. Okay, every day. Doesn't sound that productive. Anyway. No, it doesn't yeah. sound very productive. And then he basically uh, said, look, what you want to do is divide up your labour into all doing specialisation, and then through specialisation you get specialised machinery. And then once they had specialised, guess how many they're making a day? You want me to guess? Yeah. Uh, this is a quiz I do with my students. 20,000. No. 48,000. <laughs> Huge figures. Pins, I know, yeah. huge numbers. I mean, to be honest, when you were at the two hundred pin stage, I was thinking that can't provide a good living. Well, no, but forty eight thousand a day. Now suddenly you're in the realms of producing loads and loads and loads, yeah. and with that surplus, you can then sell them on, and that's how you create the wealth of nations. Um, that pin factory is what is featured on the twenty pound note. Oh, 
I didn't know. I just saw the sort of side view of his head. I didn't realise it was Yeah, a no, no, in the is, background. There is a side view of his head. Yeah, yeah. side view of his head. Pin factory in the distance. Pin factory in the background with a couple of quotes, I think. Oh, yeah. So that's fascinating. So yeah, that's yeah. specialisation for you. Um, I should have looked at that £20 note as if for the first time. And then I could have seen that pin factory. And that, yeah. yeah. And we've specialised. We have, yeah. Not in podcasting. <laughs> uh, in the teaching world. And uh, we are should be happy because now we don't have to... Uh, well, actually, through specialisation then becomes money because you need money to, in order to trade and then suddenly economics really opens up. Is, mm. is that enough for you there, Pete? So you've mentioned specialisation with respect to division of labour. Yes. Perhaps we should yeah. also touch upon specialisation with respect to countries. Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. So um, I would say that we have specialised... Oh. Uh, we'll come on to this, won't we, at a later date when we do David Ricardo, uh, where he, he took on the ideas of Adam Smith a little bit further, where he said that countries should specialise and then trade. Uh, and Portugal uh, specialised in wine, we specialised in cloth, and through that specialisation we could produce more, and then through trade we can all get richer. And that's kind of carried on today. We probably specialise in financial services. Mm -hmm. Australia, what do you reckon they specialise in? Ooh, um... I think it's probably still a service sector economy, isn't it? But perhaps they do have a lot of land. I'm, I'm going to say sheep. <laughs> Cuba. Cuba. Cigars. Bolivia. Now you're trying to sucker me in here to say something like cocaine. And I'm not, I'm not going to say it. I don't know how oh, many Bolivian listeners. <laughs> what were you going to say with Bolivia? I don't know. All right. Okay. I'm just asking. Uh, so uh, that's specialisation through countries and obviously firms specialise as well. Mm. I saw that the jelly bean factory in America, they just churn out jelly beans, but recently they're starting to differentiate or diversify into ice creams, but predominantly, you know, they specialise in jelly beans, and when Harry Potter were looking for a company to produce some Harry Potter jelly beans, they went to the jelly bean company. Right, as you would. So specialisation there has kind of helped them get better and better and better and produce greater quality products, and that's one of the things about specialisation. Mm. Now, something I showed to my class with regards to division of labour and maybe the downside of specialisation mm -hmm. is Charlie Chaplin's wonderful uh, critique of capitalism called Modern Times. Oh yeah. Yes and in it's that... It's one of those films I feel like I should have seen but haven't. Well it's a great film. Have you watched it all the way through? No. <laughs> <laughs> is it like Casablanca? You've seen two scenes of it. I've seen the majority of it. I just remember that the first teaching job I ever had, the person I took over from, she said, you must watch Modern Times because it's a great critique of capitalism. I watched a lot of it and now I use a segment of it to teach the boredom and the yeah, monotony yeah, yeah. created yeah. through the division of labour. Charlie Chaplin be, goes yeah. a little bit mad. This will be touched upon in a later podcast when we look at Marx and his concept of alienation. Yeah. Um, so we've got two, two sides of specialisation there. On the one hand, well, certainly the division of labour leads to a massive exponential increase in production. And in some ways that's going to improve our well-being. You know, if we have more goods and services, we can uh, enjoy them and have a higher material standard of living. But the flip side of that, if I'm hearing you rightly, is that we also have um, the downside which is that someone has to act in that very specialised role. And certainly if you think of your typical factory job, um, some of those are quite dull. You're doing a very sort of specific and basic sort of element of the production process. Did you ever do a factory job when you were younger? 
Uh, I worked at Elsdham Jams for a little while. Right, what did you do? I put stickers on jam. Mm-hmm. And I always remember it well because there was an old lady who used to say to me every... Well, I say every day, I only did it for a week. Uh, uh, <laughs> for a week? Yeah. She was... Well, I was like Charlie Chaplin, always yeah. slightly mad by the end yeah. of the week. Yeah. Because she kept on asking me, had I been to Lida de Gesolo? Been where? Lida de Gesolo. <laughs> and what is... Uh, it's in Italy, I think. Oh, right. So you are speaking, yeah, a different language. Yeah. Good. Um, and I said, yes, funnily enough, I had. I had on a school trip. And she asked me that every day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she was specialised in that. She'd so the, become specialised over time. We should have said that, by the way. Specialisation leads to an improvement of skill. Yes. So, so in, in a sense, the reason why production increases is because each person takes responsibility for a particular aspect of the production process. They become faster and more skillful mm. at it. And then that adds, as we said, to that exponential yeah, increase. And there's a in brilliant video online at the Wilson factory uh, where they make... Um, American footballs like oh, the right. only basically company that makes American footballs that are used in the NFL and it's a brilliant brilliant video showing these people and it's great because the manager of the firm as he goes around talking to uh, the, the, the camera he says this is Jean she's been working here for 27 years oh, that accent's good thanks <laughs> he goes on talking this is Keith he's been working here 34 years the factory's quite loud, hence the reason why I'm saying about that. Okay, and this is Anne, she's been working here 20 years. And he continues this, and all the students kind of look and think, how have they been doing that for 20, 30, 40 years? God, but know, they produce the finest American footballs. So you, as an individual, though, take Gene, who, how long has Gene went there for? 35 years! I don't, I don't know if he was. She They've might, been working there, might, all of them. She might just like put the valve in. Or something yeah, she like does. That. Yeah. One, there's one person who sews it, one person who turns the leather inside yeah. out, one who cuts, yeah. one who sticks it in the boxes. It's just a phenomenal video. Yeah. And obviously, if you follow our Twitter, we can put that link on. Great. The, the, Fantastic. The, the, the Twitter. Yeah. I've actually had, I had several factory jobs when I was younger. Did you? Yeah. I worked in an IKEA packing factory. Other assembly furniture is available. <laughs> um, and that was really tedious. Yeah. Incredibly tedious. And I did it for... I did it for about six weeks. The first two weeks, actually, I did it with a school friend uh, after we finished our A-levels. And I did it for two weeks initially. And they said, right, we want you to do the stock taking. So we went in this enormous sort of vault-like... Uh, it's, it's huge. It's like a well, you know, it's like an aircraft hangar full of coils of wire. But actually, the stock take didn't take that long. They said you've got two weeks to do this, and we worked out we could do it in about three days. So basically, what we did was one of us would like read a book or have a little kid. The other one would keep sort of look out. This is the British productivity <laughs> problem. In a nutshell. Yeah, we've solved the productivity <laughs> puzzle. <laughs> yeah. But then eventually they sort of caught on to the fact that we weren't sort of perhaps as uh, productive uh, as we could have been. Not like Jean in the Wilson yeah. factory. When they overheard uh, you talking about the three books you'd read in the week. <laughs> yeah. We got through half of Bertrand Russell's History of <laughs> Philosophy, yeah. Um, but then I, uh, then I worked on a, what's called a fly press, which basically is you put a bit of metal in a, bit of metal in a machine and then pull bits, a bit like a um, fruit machine. Yeah, pull yeah. a lever. And then a little bit of metal that's been shaped in some way sort of flies out. 
Uh, it was incredibly tedious. Yeah, it really, good. really, really boring. So that was a spring. Sorry, no, that was a spring. Did I say the IKEA factory? That was a spring factory I worked in. Right. Yeah. But I did have a job in an IKEA packing factory as well. And I remember talking, going back to the idea of division of labour and alienation. Uh, that we will. We don't want to get too into this too much, do we? No. Uh, probably going to repeat this in a future podcast. Don't worry. But anyway, um, I remember like you've got two responses as a student working in this factory. Uh, this one guy used to say to me probably every day, and again he probably became quite specialised in this. Bloody students, no common sense. And he'd say it to me every day, and I'd do this kind of <laughs> little sort of rictus grin. Uh, but then there was this sort of old lady who, 50, who might have been in her 50s. Cougar, uh, cougar. <laughs> no. no uh, well, right. I don't think we can have that in, is in the Me Too era, by the way. Um, but anyway, she, I remember her saying to me, Oh, you're a student. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, wait, I'm studying. She went, Oh, well, work hard. You, you don't want to end up here. It's like it was a prison or something. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was quite, it's actually quite moving. And I remember thinking it literally did make me work a little bit harder. And I would actually say, um, and I sometimes again say this to students, when choosing your work experience job, sometimes don't worry about if it's not mentally challenging. Yeah. Just think, oh my word, I don't ever want to be here again. (laughs) And you'll work harder to achieve your aims. Yeah. I think that's an important point. People want to do like really fun, just do something really boring. Yeah. Move you on. Anyway, so, so we need to move on. Specialisation. So yeah, I labor. think we've covered specialisation. Yeah. Perhaps we haven't covered specialisation of countries that much, but we will cover that in Ricardo, won't we? Yes. In a bit more detail. Yes. So we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll yeah. park that one, as they say. So the other concepts I thought we needed to look at were... Small I, government. Small government, yeah. Okay, and, and uh, laissez-faire yes. economies, yeah. Can so, you say what laissez-faire means, please? Yeah, please. well, literally, mm. uh, laissez-faire in French, I think, means leave to do, or, you know, leave it alone kind of thing. Uh, but perhaps you could apply that to the economic sphere. Why would people use that phrase, laissez-faire, when describing uh, an economy? Uh, don't let the government get involved in markets. Yeah. Is that is that good enough? I think that is good enough. Yeah. Okay. So in a sense, this does link very much to Smith, the idea of a small government uh, being good and almost... Governments, and we'll touch upon this when we mention the invisible hand, not necessarily being best placed to allocate resources. Yeah, is that a fair comment? Yeah, and uh, again, at this point, I'd like to say that there's a, a brilliant poem by an economist called Russell Roberts... I don't know if you've ever heard of it. So um, the economist-poet crossover Venn diagram is not that large. Yeah. But as we'll see, it c- contains who? <laughs> it's going to get larger. Uh, Russell Roberts. Russell Roberts. And Russ a, Roberts. And a certain uh, cabinet, yes. yeah. And he's, he has written about um, Adam Smith. And he wrote this poem called A Wonderful Loaf. Ooh. And again, I show it to students because I think it's a really good way of uh, showing them how just through market interactions, things get produced, and then halfway through the video, there becomes this kind of head of the Department of Bread or something like that, who then tries to try and arrange where the bread should go and what they should be producing, and then it all goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an interesting video. Again, I'll post that on Twitter for people to see. So the analogy there is the government getting involved too much 
yes. in essence, is going to spoil the economy or, in economic terms, make the economy less efficient. Yeah, and if you think about the economic problem, scarce resources and unlimited wants, then obviously we've got to make sure that those scarce resources are used in the most efficient manner possible. Yeah. And Smith would argue that the free market is one that does that. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure he'd quite put it in those uh, in those terms, um, but we'll we'll read some quotes from Smith in a minute, and perhaps we'll get a sense of uh, exactly what he would have said. Um, so small government is generally good, and this is where actually there is a sort of a lot of contention. Uh, when I was doing my reading about how sort of modern critics interpret Smith, there's some quite interesting debates about the extent to which. Smith did, and it is about the extent, he did, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it, he was quite keen on the idea of small government, but what, how small is small government? There's some quite interesting debates about that, and, and this is where I think we need to look at Smith in his time, because the economy was much simpler, um, and to apply that idea of small government to a modern economy is perhaps uh, something of a mistake, but we can look at that a little bit later on. Related to the idea of small government, though, you mentioned that, in effect, without government, markets operate freely. Perhaps you could explain the idea of the invisible hand? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll try my hardest. Uh, can I just say that, uh, again, the University Challenge, uh, no, not University Challenge, Open University have some excellent videos called the 60 Second Adventures in Economics. And the first one is about the invisible hand and it's um dave no david where mitchell dave right. what's he called mitchell david mitchell he does the voiceover of those videos the chap now sporting a beard who's yes. a comedian chap yeah, yeah. Mitchell and mitchell. yeah that's it okay yeah. anyway he does it so the invisible hand is basically saying that uh, we've all got, as it were, money votes, and wherever the money votes are, if you want something, the invisible hand will provide, because businesses will look and think, oh, I want some of that money, I think I can produce that product at a certain cost, and therefore uh, we will then move production into that so that uh, the consumer will be fulfilled uh, from what they want. Uh, I don't think that's the best description. <laughs> But then another business will come along and say, ah, oh, I think we can do it as well. And so therefore the invisible hand is continually mm -hmm. moving resources around mm -hmm. based on where the money votes mm -hmm. are. The consumer in this part is kind of king. So in a, in a sense, what we're missing perhaps from that explanation mm -hmm. is the idea of a price mechanism. Thank you. Yeah. So in other words, the price mechanism is the key in a free market economy to explaining how and why resources are allocated to different purposes. So in other words, let's keep it simple. If the price of a product uh, is rising, that's often because people are demanding it, this will signal to uh, producers, let's all pile into that market. There's money to be made there. Whereas if the price falls, retailers aren't able to get rid of a product, so they drop the price. That again is signaling to the, the supplier, let's get out of that market. If you left that to government, it would be an inordinately complex task for, for governments to sort of spot what's going on in all these different markets and then to sort of pull or push resources into those markets. Um, so the invisible hand, it, in a sense, it's a price mechanism at work. 
And the analogies there is just, it's as if there's like an invisible hand moving sort of pieces around on the economics chessboard. So I've got a couple of quotes from Smith. I'm not, I can't do the Scottish accent. Okay. I, I've, I've given up. I think I've alienated all our Scottish listeners already. So I'm just going to go uh, in my uh, Mancunian slash lived in the South too long uh, voice. So here's a couple of quotes which I do think relate to the uh, invisible hand. This is, this is kind of a famous one. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher. I think it's benevolence, isn't it? Yeah. It's not from. <laughs> it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our necessities, but of their advantages. So I think what that is saying is that, in a sense, people aren't trying to, to, to be good. They're not trying to allocate resources efficiently. They're acting in their self-interest. They want to make a good living. We're acting our, in our self-interest. We want nice bread. Um, we want uh, meat. And by both acting in our self-interest, we um, end up with resources being allocated efficiently. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that yeah. makes sense. Happy with that? Yeah. Um, what's interesting about that quote, and this is where, again, we're getting some quite interesting or more nuanced debates, is the idea of self-interest. Now, does self-interest mean selfishness? And this is where I think that Adam Smith has been simplified a little bit too much. Um, his ideas are shared in a very crude manner. Whereas if you actually read him in the original, which isn't easy, as you can... <laughs> As you probably got from those quotes, it's not. It's not written in in sort of particularly um, well by modern ears lucid uh, standards. Uh, but I think he he has been sort of simplified a, a little bit too much, and I don't think he is necessarily talking about selfishness. I don't think self interest is the same as selfishness. Perhaps uh, we could debate that, but um, that is where I think in sort of. The last 20 years, particularly 20, 30 years perhaps, it's this idea that you're getting Wall, Wall Street. Is it Wall Street? So greed is good. Yeah. yeah. And to a certain extent, Smith is, is saying that. You know, he's sort of saying that. But is self-interest the same as greed? I'm not, I'm not sure that it is. I don't know. I, I mean, the thing about this podcast, Pete, is that we're doing 10 uh, questions, uh, economics and 10 questions. Yeah. And what I'm hoping from the podcast is sometimes we'll raise some questions yeah. for the listeners to think, yeah, I'll consider that a little bit more. Yeah. On that note, though, I feel like I'm being moved on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to talk about the because uh, I've obviously got the invisible hand quote that originally yeah. came from Shakespeare. Are you going to talk about this or not? I'm not. So perhaps you okay. should. Right now, you said about uh, Smith going back to lecture, and he did, and he lectured quite a lot on Shakespeare. And so this idea of him using the invisible hand came from uh, Macbeth. Right. Where uh, Macbeth was about to kill Banquo. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got the quote here, and I'm going to be doing my best thespian accent. Are we talking, Brian Blessed? <clears throat> Come, ceiling knight, scarf up thy tender eye of pitiful day, and with thy bloody and invisible hand, cancel and tear to pieces that great bond which keeps me pale. Good, that's very powerful. Thank you. Um, yeah. Anyway. Did I say actually I played a role in Macbeth once? No, who, who, who was it? I was uh, Malcolm. 
<laughs> Is that a big role? Not really. No, I think Malcolm's I would... the kind of the the guy who comes in at the end who after like Matt. Is it Matt Duff who kills Matt Beth? And he's the new King of Scotland. Duncan's son, the guy. Yeah. So basically, I come in at the end and do some. Calm down, everyone. It's all alright now. Matt Beth's dead. And um, we're all going to move forward. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the reason uh, I. My like Theresa May after Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've re- mentioned the B word. Don't, don't oh, do no. that. Oh, now, the, the reason I bring up that quote is because some commentators uh, have said that uh, one of the interesting things about the invisible hand working there is that um, he kills Bancro, but I think his son runs off or something. Yeah, that's and Malcolm. Oh, it, uh, he escapes. No, no, not, not Bancro's And son. so therefore, no, Ma- sometimes, son. the self-interest that comes about from obviously the killing of Bancro, the invisible hand, yeah. then eventually leads his kind of undoing. Mm. So some people say that maybe he was using that kind of Shakespeare invisible hand quote in a kind of slightly... I don't really know, but here's a here's a here's a fun fact for you. Come on, then. <clears throat> Which building in the city of London right. is the only one that has been allowed to have a thatched roof since the Great Fire of London? Is it Shakespeare's Garden? Correct. Well that, done. That is a modern remake, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, but. It's just the only one that's been allowed to have a thatch roof oh, since right. the Great Fire of London. Wow. Um, so there you go. So Shakespeare used with Adam Smith's kind of writing. So that was kind oh. of mildly interesting. Yeah. And we got to do our thespian you, you voices. You did, yeah. I think you did it very effectively, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking for roles. <laughs> so before we move on, there's a couple, uh, you know, and we, we start to look at our other categories, our other questions. There is a, just a couple of things I think it's worth uh, revisiting or mentioning. First is this idea that arguably Adam Smith creates a concept which eventually becomes GDP. GDP really, um, for, that, for those listeners who don't know, GDP is um, gross domestic product, which is a sort of measure of all the goods and services produced uh, in a country. And really, that's the modern way in which we measure the, the success of an economy. Now, we could debate whether that is in a, the most apt way to measure success in a modern economy. There's some quite interesting sort of writers writing about that in, in, in recent times. Um, but certainly it is. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, uh, politicians are, will quote GDP statistics. Governments will fall and rise on the basis of GDP statistics. And to a certain extent, you can date uh, or trace back the idea of GDP to Adam Smith's writings. Because before he's writing, governments are very much like, how much gold and silver can we accumulate? And he's saying, well, actually, no, the wealth of nations, you know, the shortened version title of his most famous work, is the idea that actually, no, the wealth of nations is, is captured in the production of its citizens, in what, in what they produce on a day-to-day basis. And the more of that is, that is produced through specialisation and so on, then the wealthier uh, the nation becomes. So I think we're okay with that now, GDP. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not named it GDP. I think that's uh, Simon Kuznets who sort of asked to sort of measure GDP more formally. I mean, I think it's in the 1930s. And we might, we might do an episode on Kuznets. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting guy as well. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to sort of end with before we move away from sort of Smith's th- uh, theories is just the idea of you know, was he, wasn't he sort of in favour of small government? So bear in mind he's writing 
in the 18th century, there's a very long list which we can extract from the wealth of nations of some of the things that he thinks the government should do. So I'll just give you a few examples of that. Um, the Navigation Acts, uh, sterling marks on plate and stamps on linen and, and woolen cloth. So that one's interesting, I think, in particular, because you, you understand what that is. If you like a silver candlestick, a genuine one, flip it over, there'll be some sort of mark on it, which will tell you the quality of the silver involved. So he's writing in what is a very simple economy and basically almost implying there, there should be some form of standardisation. And the reason I think that's interesting, because a lot of modern debate is, ah, oh, you know, markets are over-regulated, there's, there's too much standardisation and so on and so forth. But, and, and you can often, and Smith is often used, he's often sort of wheeled out as, you know, free markets good, sort of government bad. But he was in favour of some form of sort of standardisation uh, and, and re regulation, in effect. So there is actually quite, quite a long list that you can extract from the Wealth of Nations, which if you think about it, he's writing in much simpler times, um, in a much uh, simpler, smaller economy as well. You know, the population of the UK would have been... Uh, massively smaller uh, in those times you almost think if you sort of popped Adam Smith down today what side would he come down on in terms of regulation would he want much sort of clearer regulation of things like monopolies than we have currently because as I said he's often sort of wheeled out I found out an interesting fact by the way from the Reagan uh, administration in America which is often seen as along with the Thatcher government, as really reviving the ideas of uh, a free market, um, pushing the idea of small government and so on. A lot of them used to wear in, uh, the, the right-wing sort of chaps, and probably was chaps again, in the Reagan White House, would wear Adam Smith neckties, yeah, which you can purchase. Yeah? I'm sure other economists' <laughs> neckties are available. I'm saying neckties because I think that's what Americans Just to it. go back to um, the thing about regulation, I remember... Um, Uh, the European Union, because at the time, obviously, there was a campaign. This is a few years back before Brexit, and the Daily Mail were trying to take us out of the European Union, and their front page of the newspaper was uh, Euro diplomats uh, are basically getting involved in oven gloves. You know, it's outrageous mm -hmm. oven gloves. And what the European Union were trying to do was to make sure that every oven glove on sale would basically take the heat of 220 degrees. Right. Okay. And the paper were basically complaining that us Brits <laughs> wanted to burn our hands. <laughs> and I always found that quite funny. It was like, no, we want oven gloves that are useless. Let me use them when I take stuff out of the oven so I can burn. Um, and I thought that was classic kind of anti-European regulation where you're mm. thinking that's actually quite a good policy so you don't get kind of rogue mm. makers of I mean, that is the thing about gloves. regulation generally though isn't it it's like there's regulations on what toys can be made of for example so I presume they're made of fire retardant material mm. it's like we don't want regulations we want our kids to have toys that yeah. Go on fire and that's maybe what the bonfire of regulations means. Yes. Oof. Clever. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's loads of things on this list though that Adam Smith said government. Have you got any more do. for us? Uh, <laughs> the one that did tickle my fancy a little bit is the encouragement of martial exercises. Yeah. So in other words, we should be, I don't know, martial arts or something. 
So the government should be encouraging What's Marshall. People. What does that mean in that? Ma- in well, that Marshall in that, those days would have meant warlike. Oh. Yeah. So, okay. So I presume it's young men and women sort of maybe practicing jujitsu of the morning. Well, yeah. and and many people say, don't they, that in school these days we should be bringing kind of ex-army in. Yeah. Or bring back national service. Yes. My dad, happiest days of his life. <laughs> Anyway, so we need to move on. So hopefully we've managed to get across now Adam Smith's uh, life. We, I've saved a couple of fascinating facts for, for, for a later round about Adam Smith. Um, and hopefully we've got across his main ideas. Yeah? Okay. So, what do the critics say about Adam Smith? Do you think we've covered that? A lot of the time in what we've just been speaking about there or are there specific things you want to speak about um i think i think we have largely covered that i think in terms of um well when you say critics i suppose you'd have to consider positive and negative critics he is still extremely popular um amongst public intellectuals particularly on the right wing but not 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 sort of uh, wholly um, I was reading recently that the Chinese premier, um, I can't remember his name now, which is a, a level of ignorance that I, is unforgivable, uh, but he apparently carries a copy of Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments around with him. Perhaps it's not the current prime minister, perhaps it's a, an earlier one. But the idea, actually, he, he believed that that corresponded quite closely with Confucian ideas, which is interesting. So anyway, he's very popular, very popular uh, among sort of the right wing. But actually, in some ways, perhaps there's a case for him to be reclaimed uh, by sort of the, the economics community more broadly, because he is a much more interesting and nuanced thinker um, than perhaps he's often given credit for. But certainly, he's still... Do you think the Adam Smith Institute, for example, maybe gives Adam Smith a bad name? Perhaps. Adam Smith Institute, by the way, is a think tank... Uh, based in London, and um, you know they have interesting debates related to free market ideas. Yeah, I think they very push this Adam Smith free market, free market. I think they would definitely come down on quite an extreme version of what small government is, which I personally think I'm not sure Adam Smith would be comfortable with himself. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, critic. I suppose critics, think about critics more generally, there are people who just would be anti the idea of um, unfettered free markets and they would point to various aspects of market failure um, that free markets don't really um, account for or compensate for. But again, I'm not sure that that's a fair criticism of Smith. I think he was aware of market failure and the role of government in, in addressing that. So, uh, yeah, I think he's still, yeah, I think critics on both sides. I think we've covered that. Okay, food time now, which obviously I'm really looking forward to. So, what are we eating today, Pete, that has a spurious link to the economist in question? Well, I'm just going to pause our podcast briefly uh, because I'm going to go away in a moment and get the foodstuffs. But before I do that, I'm going to give you a quote. Yeah, and this is um, a, a great quote, I think. So, I'm trying to find some foodstuffs which link to the 18th century. Yeah, so trying to give you a flavour of uh, time 
in, well, not time immemorial, time in the 18th century. Am I going to be eating something pretty minging? No. Right. Well, possibly. So, I could have given you coffee. In the 18th century in London, um, coffee was more popular than in any other global location. Coffee was also thought to increase the reproductive capabilities of men. <laughs> so I could have given you some coffee. But I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm actually going to give you something else. And I'm going to describe to you, uh, as reading about uh, food in 18th century Edinburgh, which is obviously where Smith was based. And I love this quote. So, in the 18th century, there were oyster cellars, a form of entertainment peculiar to Edinburgh. An English visitor once described the scene at one of these basement parties as a large and brilliant company of both sexes, with a large table in the centre, covered with dishes full of oysters and pots of porter, all followed by a large bowl of punch and some wild dancing. The visitor found it odd to be regaling in a cellar, was impressed at the cost, a mere two shillings a head. So my thought is, Adam Smith at one of these basement parties. Yeah. It may not have happened, but for the sake of this podcast, should we agree that it happened? Yeah. Right, so I am now going to go off <laughs> and get... I actually found, I got these, bought these just this morning. I didn't want to buy them a few days ago because they more upset me. But we've got oysters. But what I couldn't find was porter. Now, porter's a kind of... I should have asked you... very dark ale. Very dark ale, isn't it? Yeah, so I bought some Guinness instead. Well, that's fine. Other dark ales are available. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go off. We're going to have a brief interlude while we eat the porter, eat the porter, drink the porter and eat the oysters. And then we'll give some feedback on how it's transported us back to the 18th century. Okay, so we're back in the room. We've uh, got our porter, a.k.a. Guinness. What we've just discovered there is that we didn't have a clue how to open oysters. Yeah, and I also discovered that uh, Gavin's never eaten oysters before, which, for a man of his uh, culture, I'm surprised. To be fair, I've only had them once before. So this is the sound of porter, a.k.a. Guinness, uh, which was very easy to open, unlike the oysters, which were quite tricky. Um, this is like a form of method acting. No, we... <laughs> I don't think we really need to hear the sound of you slurping oysters. But this is a bit like method acting. We're trying to sort of take mm. ourselves back to that yeah. 18th century oyster salon. Mm. So what do you think? Well, I'm a big fan of Jilla Deals. And that, <laughs> that had a kind of... had the jelliness of, obviously, Jilla Deals. Pretty <laughs> it's, Pete at this moment is spitting out some food <laughs> in, a, in a most disgusting way. Um, I think I got a bit of shell. <laughs> I, I think, think points to the inadequacy I, of our. Uh, I am quite pleased. Quite pleased that I decanted uh, my oh, one oh. and didn't suck it straight out of the shell. Oh, I think I might need some water to wash that down. Yeah. Well, um, I can't believe. Um, you know, eating oyster and drinking porter, Adam Smith didn't find him, himself a lady. <laughs> now, we don't know that Adam Smith himself actually attended these oh, porter right, okay. They could have been like, I don't know, the underground raves of their time. He could have been a bit older. Okay. Or, as they would be now, some kind of gangster grime. Mm. Um, 
party. I don't know what that would be in modern speak. But uh, anyway, cheers. Cheers. Here's to Adam Smith. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, obviously, I suppose this is a great time to bring in what is your favourite story about Adam Smith mm. uh, that you came across when reading up on him? I mean, obviously, we've already heard a little bit about the um, the traveller's story. Yeah. So we've mentioned the kidnapped by gypsies. There's quite a few stories, actually. I mean, in some ways, he looks quite boring. He didn't seem to leave a particularly exciting life, apart from, you know, the intellectual adventures mm. he won on as part of the uh, his travels through the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, but So here, here's a few things I found. Uh, apparently, he was comically absent-minded. Like Mr Bean. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he had peculiar habits of speech and gait, and a smile of inexpressible... I'm not sure he pronounced this word, benignity, which I think he means he just, he just looked quite happy all the time, but it made me think a bit simple, which, mm. to be fair, he, he doesn't come across as simple in his writing. No. Um, he was known to talk to himself. Uh, apparently that started in his childhood. Would he, he would smile in, in rapt conversation with invisible companions. <laughs> I quite like that. Yeah. See, to be honest, I was reading through his biography, thinking, oh, but then you read some of this detail, he does sound, he sounds quite fun. Yeah. Um, he had also had occasional spells of imaginary illness. So, I don't, maybe some kind of hypochondriac, yeah. I don't know what that means. But this, this probably is my favourite story. Um, so, according to one story, uh, Smith took a, a friend on a tour of a tanning factory. So tanning, you know, they make leather. Right. Now, how is leather made? Do you know this? Uh, n- well, you can inform me. Uh, it involves a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you get cow's hide, and you can't, I don't know what, I don't, to be honest, I don't know the process. Beat that out. Yeah, we'll beat that out. Yeah. Okay. Family show. Um, but yeah, it involves a lot of um, animal right. death feces, okay. animal feces, yeah. And that's used to cure leather in some way. Yeah. Uh, so that's what tanning is. So, uh, so Smith's walking around this tanning factory with his friend. I think his friend was called Charles Townsend, and they were discussing free trade, yeah, like we've been doing today. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, he, uh, whilst discussing free trade, walked into a huge tanning pit <laughs> <laughs> from which he needed help to escape. I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> which links to the Mr Bean. Yeah, but yeah, and, and there's a few other sort of Mr. B moments. Um, he is also said to have put bread and butter into a teapot, drunk it, and declared it to be the worst cup of tea he had ever had. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? Um, and then there's one more. Uh, apparently, he went out walking in his nightgown distractedly and ended up 15 miles outside of town before nearby church bells brought him back to reality. Wow. Yeah. wow. So he's quite, quite absent-minded. So he's sort of stereotypical absent-minded professor. Yeah. So I think the favourite, my favourite is the tanning factory. <laughs> I quite like the tea. The tea the one. Tea one yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> How dare this tea be disgusting? <laughs> and he put bread and, was it bread and? Uh, bread and butter. Yeah, bread and butter. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be nice. No, no. Well, fair enough. Okay, well, thank you for that. <coughs> now, I suppose this leads on, really. Um, having heard that, I might have changed my suggestions. Um, but who would play Adam Smith in a film? So, 
obviously this question is inspired by you know the beautiful mind we know russell crowe uh, played john nash although we might do one about john nash and you can maybe offer a better suggestion of who should have played him um but i always find it quite fascinating you know what kind of actors would do it so i'm going to offer you three every time we do this i'm going to offer you three right but you can add your own so okay. here we go can i add more than one of on my own or just one you can do whatever you like so free free yeah would it be eddie redmayne <laughs> no sam the eagle from the puppet the muppets <laughs> yeah okay you okay. got to explain these choices. <laughs> well if you look at sam the eagle uh, from the Muppets, he kind of looks a little bit like Adam Smith. Right. Okay. So, if there's a Muppet version of Economists. Okay. Yeah. Or Mel Gibson. Oh God, not <laughs> Mel Gibson. <laughs> the reason I chose him was because he's already played a great Scotsman. Uh, they may take away our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. <laughs> so at this point, I think the listeners are nostalgic for my <laughs> attempt at a Scottish accent. Or would you suggest? someone else okay I did look at this question right uh, and uh, I, I thought Robbie Coltrane yeah slightly too plump yeah I don't know there's a slightly comic element uh, to him uh, but he can also play serious roles okay like it yeah yeah but I'm, I'm happy with I, I, the only one I wouldn't be happy with is Mel Gibson right don't like Mel Gibson okay yeah um, he peed <laughs> <laughs> What, do you brave heart? <laughs> you could get, I suppose you could get Sean Connery in a week. Yeah. Well, I was going to choose other famous Scottish uh, actors. I'll tell you who is good, uh, Scottish actor, Brian Cox. I don't mean the, like, yeah, yeah, popular yeah. physicist. No, I think that's a good one, actually. Yeah, yeah I like good character actor. Okay. Well, okay, so we've got it. We'll go Brian Cox. Oh, late entry, getting straight. Yeah, great. <laughs> I've moved on from Hagen. Right, great. So, we're trying to appeal to the younger demographic as shown by my garage talk. <laughs> um, how would Adam Smith be represented as an emoji? Okay, I've thought about this, but I'm not sure how you would do it. Okay. An invisible hand. But then I thought you could just get the outline of a hand that flashes Is 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 that an emoji? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> just a hand, a waving hand. Waving, that's a bit, I don't know, a waving hand could just be, oh, it's a waving hand. But, 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 my but by its very nature, you can't have an invisible hand as an emoji. <laughs> but you could have one that fades in and out. You know, I, I think the world's moved on from emojis, you see. This is why your attempts to appeal to your demographic. There's like bitmoji now. It could be a gif. <laughs> that makes it sound even older. <laughs> Anyway, something something along the lines okay. of invisible hand. Invisible yeah. hand. I, I, that kind of sums him up. On, the, on, on Twitter, I'm pin. probably going to have to choose the hand. Yeah. Yeah. Pin. Or a pin. Or a pin. Okay. Pin factory. I don't know. Pin factory emoji. <laughs> I don't know if we have it. Okay, I think we've done that. <laughs> what books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about Adam Smith? Well, okay, this is uh, a difficult one because reading them in the original is difficult. But what I would say is get a decent sort of collected works of that isn't written by some right-wing nutjob. So, uh, sorry, did I say that? That's going to alienate half our listeners, isn't it? 
<laughs> okay. Uh, so, no, I mean, right wing is fine, centre right is fine, but what I'm talking about is this sort of real, sort of hardcore. So, so there's loads of those, there's loads of abridged editions. Is, um, you can probably read it free online. And although it's difficult to get through, I would say at least read some of his work uh, in the original. Do you know what else is available free online? His biography, written by a contemporary, called John Ray, which mm. is where you get the amusing stories about him from. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Anything else? Um, I've just got two. Can I, oh, yeah, can yeah, I chip course, in here? Yeah, course, uh, yeah. I've already mentioned Russ Roberts, and mm. he had a book called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Mm. So... Uh, it's apparently a very good read. And a book I recently read uh, last summer was Catherine Marcel's Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? Right, okay. Which was a brilliant book. And it basically says, where were all the women in Adam Smith's life? Right. So, you know, you mentioned earlier on that he went back home. He lived with his mum. Yeah, and lived with his mother. And yet, you know, while he was there writing and doing his walks and falling into tanning pits... You know, who is there at home preparing the dinner, looking after the house and home? And that's one of the, I would argue, interesting points about the book, mm. is he didn't see any of that aiding towards the economy. And I suppose when you talk about GDP earlier on, mm -hmm. that side of things has always been the missing economy. Yeah. Um, and she raises the point really nicely in her book, and I would really recommend it. Okay, great. So we've got a few reader recommendations there, which um, you'll put on a Twitter account, I assume. I will do. In due course. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, great. Are we, are we happy with that? We're happy. So, uh, we've got t t three more. If Adam Smith was a boxer, what do you think his walk-on music would be? Okay. Have you got some suggestions? I've got some. <laughs> no, I've got no. Oh, you've got none. No right. Okay. right. Well, I thought you could almost do... We need someone to cover this for us. But how about Genesis, Invisible Touch, but could turn it into Invisible Hand. A bit like when Elton John yeah. redid Camel in the, the Wind. Candle in the Wind. Oh, Candle. What did you call it? Camel in the Wind. <laughs> so Candle in the Wind. When he redid it after Diana died, and it was uh, Goodbye England's Rose, yeah. rather than Norma Jean, we could get... Perhaps Genesis would do it for us. Yeah. Are Genesis still going? Yeah, and funnily enough, <clears throat> interesting, well, I think it's interesting, Roachford, the 80s <laughs> pop star, yeah. uh, was... I love how throughout this podcast you've been trying to portray your youth, <laughs> bringing up Roachford. Was one of their lead singers on their latest album. Oh, was he? Yeah. So, is he, is Phil Collins isn't sort of part of no, the he's group, no? no, he's not gone. No, he's not gone. Okay, uh, gotcha. Oh, I'd, mm, actually, I might be thinking about Mike and the Mechanics. <laughs> 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 so anyway, uh, so anyway, invisible ignore hand, that. Invisible... But that would be good. Yeah. Now, invisible hand. No, invisible touch. I yeah. think wasn't that the video that featured spitting image characters? I don't know. It's land of confusion. Don't worry about it. Uh, right. I've got some other suggestions. Yeah. Um, Strong one to start with. Yeah. I think we'll probably end up with that. But anyway, Marilyn Monroe. Again, famous only for singing "Happy Birthday." Yeah. Uh, wrote a song called Spe well I don't think he wrote it but she sang a song called Specialisation nice yeah okay uh, so again you can listen to that on YouTube if you want to okay other streaming sites are available yeah <laughs> uh, and also and I'm going to give them a name check I've never listened to this but there is a band a rock band from Bristol called Turbo Wolf 
who I'm hoping giving this shout out are now going to become our most faithful listeners. They've written a song called Invisible Hands, ah. so it doesn't even need any sort of transcriptions. And what, what's their name again? Turbo Wolf. Turbo Wolf. Yeah, apparently, according to their fan site, they're hard to classify. They sound like a sort of death metal band, don't they? Yeah, uh, that sounds... But they might not be. They might not be. They're, they're hard acid to classify. Acid jazz. Acid Okay, well... Right. I, I, I mean, probably go for Invisible Touch. Yeah, fair enough. <clears throat> we have now got... We've now got Poetry Corner. Poetry Corner. So, now, uh, as I said earlier on, um, Peter and I did play Accentuate. Um, where we get to practice our accents and you've obviously heard a few of them today uh, and I <laughs> think that all poems sound best when read like John Cooper Clark. oh god <laughs> okay so, so you want me to lead you in you ready this is that? Adam Smith by Gavin Cooper Clark. so I'm going to do you lead in yeah? yeah okay thank you who is that bloke on the 20 pound note why isn't it Harry on a unicorn float it's a man named Adam, surnamed Smith, the most famous Scottish economist, wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations that eventually became the inspiration for what we now call capitalism that encouraged every specialism that led to trade and trade and trade as that's the way fortunes are made. And when you hear of the invisible hand allocating resources across the land, as many suggest, is the most efficient way. It is Smith that's quoted, come what may. However, there is a rather large criticism that he completely ignored feminism, for he never saw economic worth in the human beings that gave birth. Oh, is that the end? That is the end. Well done. Yeah, Thanks. round of applause. <laughs> so around, around the country, lots of people applauding now. Uh, that will be on Twitter. Well, you can download that and read that at your leisure. Okay, fantastic. So, I we've think... got one final question. <laughs> the verdict. So, what do we think of him? What do we think of Adam Smith? Would we have a weed round with him? I think we would, wouldn't we? I think it'd be quite good fun. Obviously, you'd get the intellectual side of things and he'd probably lose us quite quickly. You know, he'd sort of go off and... To philosophical realms and um, weaker intellects like ourselves might be left behind. But he's quite fit. He sounds quite funny. He sounds quite absent-minded. You could probably like tie his laces together. <laughs> You've been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think he sounds likable and also interesting. And I think he very much was of his time. But I think he'd have something to say about our time if he came back today. He's clearly a deep thinker. Yeah. Yeah, but a likeable chap as well. One thing I didn't mention as well, uh, he wrote a lot about empathy. You know, the, he didn't quite call it empathy, but the idea of, sort of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and that being a quintessentially sort of human uh, characteristic. Mm. So, yeah, I think we like him. We like him, but we probably, judging at the state of my belly at the moment, wouldn't eat oysters with him. But there you go. Well, thank you very much, uh, Pete. Um, and that's the end of thank this first podcast. And thank you, Gav. And one final question. Who is it next time? 
Next time we have another great, another economics heavyweight, John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> Thanks very, very much for listening. Very good. We'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you will listen to our next podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank all of those who have written about Adam Smith. And we'd also like to, at this point, thank our economics teachers for inspiring us to study economics at a high level. We'd also like to thank our friend Nick, who gave us technical advice with regards to podcasting. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Economics in 10, where you can see a wonderful painting of Adam Smith and read the poem at your leisure. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for listening.